Hey, I'm Sam Dover, and you're listening to City Road. Last week, we listened to a panel from the Festival of Urbanism on endangered discourse and how our media and politicians discuss the systemic issues that plague our modern housing system. If you missed it, definitely check that one out. It was really great zooming out and getting an idea of the conversations that define the action or inaction we have on these growing problems in our urban landscapes. In this week's episode, Endangered Governance, we'll be continuing that narrative by getting into the nitty-gritty, exploring the realities facing planners and policymakers, as well as highlighting strategies for those committed to reshaping our cities along more equitable lines. Our panel is headed by City Road's own Dr. Dallas Rogers, who is incredibly well-versed in issues of housing policy and urban planning. We also have Han Albi, the founder and executive director of the Center for Public Integrity. Michael West, an investigative journalist and founder of Michael West Media. Sue Weatherly, the Director of City Strategy and Innovation at Georges River Council. And Dr. Crystal Legacy, the Associate Professor of Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne and Deputy Director of the Informal Urbanism Research Hub. I'll hand it over to Dallas, who'll take it from here. Hello everyone, uh, welcome to the Festival of Urbanism and welcome to this event. And I might go to you first, Crystal. You've been doing a lot of work on major infrastructure projects in Victoria over many years now. And like the unsolicited proposal process that we have up here in New South Wales, you've been looking at market-led, what's called market-led proposals in Victoria. Can you tell me a little bit about how money and power and politics works in these projects? Absolutely. Dallas, thanks for the invitation to take part in this session. And I just want to quickly acknowledge that I'm broadcasting today on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. So my research, I will speak to the question of politics, but before I do, I just want to set, give some context. So my research looks at the politics of infrastructure planning and the politics of public participation on the other hand. So when we think about the politics of infrastructure planning, what I'm interested interested in is how the politics of transport infrastructure planning are concealed through policies, practices, and processes led through state-based planning programs. I'm also interested in the politics of public participation. So how participating citizens seek to repoliticize what the state has otherwise depoliticized or not put up for public debate or public scrutiny. So two illustrative examples of this, of this tension between these two politics um, can be seen through the East-West Link um, and the Westgate Tunnel Project, which is also still a live project. These are two inner city toll road projects here in Melbourne, Victoria, where I'm based. Now the East-West Link, now a cancelled project, but still a zombie project, um, was cancelled after the election of the Labour Party government in 2014. And very simply, the project was cancelled for two reasons. One was it was the wrong project in the wrong place at the wrong time. And secondly, the planning of this project was lacking transparency. And very famously, Dan Andrews, after being elected uh, on the first Monday of seeking power, of of receiving power, uh, uh, disclosed and released the business case for the East-West Link. Now, just want to acknowledge that my my dear colleague, Dr. James Murphy, has written a book about the East-West Link, going to come out shortly. So I definitely look forward to reading that and I encourage others to to do so as well. But putting the East-West Link aside, 
Only two weeks after it was formally canceled, the Labour Party government announced an even bigger project in the form of the Westgate Tunnel, at that point, a $5.5 billion project that would seek to do two things. One, to get trucks off of inner city residential streets, and two, to offer a second alternative crossing to the Westgate Tunnel. Now, why am I raising this project in this discussion, and why would others outside of Victoria be interested in it? Well, it emerged through this thing called an unsolicited proposal or a market-led proposal scheme. And I just want to acknowledge the great work that Dallas Rogers has done on unsolicited urbanism. So you might be wondering, well, what is a market-led proposal? What is unsolicited urbanism? So market-led proposal is a planning instrument that allows elite actors to propose large, complex, and expensive transport projects, citing innovation as the primary public interest claim. So in this context, being innovative, now I'm citing from the state government website on market-led proposal schemes, is a project that can meet or service infrastructure needs and support economic growth, but that these projects contain genuine in intellectual property possessed by the, public, by the project proponent, which creates a really significant challenge for us because it then introduces commercial incompetence clauses. So then we uh, encounter that problem again of a lack of transparency. We had that problem with the East-West Link. Here it is again. So the title of the discussion today is Endangered Governance. So let me conclude with a couple of remarks or perhaps even provocations. So the use of market-led proposals is a planning instrument used to conceal the politics of infrastructure planning. It is there to foreclose public discussion about the efficacy of a project. It introduces another layer or perhaps a barrier that further muddles transparency and it blurs accountability, raising the question of whose project is this actually, who's accountable and who's actually being served by this project. Now the Westgate Tunnel story remains ongoing and if you've been reading the newspapers here locally, you'll know about the cost blowouts and the soil contamination issues. But it also raises a larger question for all of us to consider, and that is what is happening to our urban governance? And is it in fact endangered or perhaps on its own route to becoming extinct? So lack of transparency, blurred accountability, the coming together of the public and the private sector, very difficult to untangle. And we also see fragmented forms of um, infrastructure planning and the privatization of infrastructure planning and its delivery. So what can we do about it? Well, I don't know whether or not I should hang, uh, leave this question to uh, the discussion at the end, but I just want to rem remind everyone that governance is about power relationships. It's about policies, practices, and processes that support the governing and planning, and it structures what counts and who gets to be counted in the planning for our cities. It means that only certain logics, certain rationalities, certain ways of knowing, and some lived experiences are counted in the planning and the imagining of our future city. Thanks, Dallas. Thanks so much for that, Crystal. I might go to Michael West now, and Michael West has been following the money and following the power through politics and other spaces for quite a, a while now. And I'm a big fan of Michael's work. And Michael, I wonder if the best place to start here is just to ask you 
what is it like in a the day in the life of an investigative journalist who is following the money and following the power? What how do you how do you go about doing that activity? You basically spend 15 hours a day with your laptop lying on the couch. Uh, that's the mechanics, the physicality of it to Dallas. But um, look, it's a matter of accessing information, often public information, which is hard to find, and uh, then distilling it, working out what the public interest is, then writing the story. So we've been at this now for for six years, and we've got a bit of a niche as an independent media mob because we managed to we ha- we have no corporate agendas or political agendas that we had have to adhere to. There's no money in our politics. And so we can have a good hard crack at this kind of thing. And it's rampant. Uh, as Crystal uh, was saying, there are many, many problems with the planning environment. And, um, and at the heart of them is transparency and extremely poor leadership from those in power and from the business community uh, who donate to them, frankly. Um, could, could you talk us through a project, uh, a project that you've done recently, maybe that kind of talks through the issue that you were dealing with and how you went about collecting the data and writing it up? Well, I mean, the classic of all classics has just happened. The the, the big submarines deal. Uh, there is no data to write up. It's just an announcement. So you go and try to figure out why it's happened. Who are the lobby groups behind it? Is it, is it, is it Boris Johnson and BAE, the uh, weapons contractor? What is, wh- where's the text of this, this AUKUS or AUKUS uh, new treaty arrangement? What, what, is, what does this deal mean? Is it politically designed to, to ramp up the rhetoric against China? All these things. See, we, we try to look at the evidence and the money trail. In this case, there is no money trail. There's $2 billion wasted already on the French deal, which was hugely problematic and corrupt in itself, the arrangement with Naval. Now, a $90 billion contract, there's going to be a large break fee on that. So how much is it going to cost us? There's no information. But, you know, with these kind of things, as with a, as with a, a, a state-based thing like the one you mentioned, the Crown Casinos deal which has been an absolute travesty of governance, and that was an unsolicited proposal or a market-led proposal. I love that uh, euphemism. Um, Basically, transparency is it. There's no public sector comparators anymore to even decide. In the case of Transurban, are we better off building rail? Been not much rail building going on in Melbourne for 100 years, or are we better off having roads? That discussion wasn't even had. What happened was... Transurban, well, what has happened now, it's a complete monopoly. And, of course, only a few days ago, the, the last $11 billion tranche of, um, of equity in Westconnex, New South Wales's biggest project, was sold to Transurban as well, giving it a monopoly over monopolies in road in Australia, almost the ability to, to, to tax motorists with huge uh, ability to lift the tolls, you know, 4% a year, I think, in some cases, depending on the concession. So you have these, you have now the, the situation where the private sector is so fused with the public sector and the secrecy and lack of transparency is so great uh, that really, um, you know, I mean, local community groups can still, um, you know, as happened in some gas projects in northern New South Wales and so on, can still get together and oppose public proposals that benefit private interests, but it takes a hell of a sophisticated mass campaign to be able to do that because the level of secrecy uh, is so great. And it all, the rot began a long time ago 
Uh, but the the c- casino deal, the first we saw about that was a splash on the front page of Rupert Murdoch's Daily Telegraph tabloid up here, an artist's impression. The deal had already been done. The unsolicited proposal had been agreed to and then from there now we have a situation where, where uh, you know, we have a virtual criminal enterprise that's been established in the Crown inquiry, you know, running cover for Chinese triads, uh, has been awarded this monopoly concession here with no public process. So mm. there are some really very basic, very significant things that have to be addressed uh, in public planning. Uh, and and my total view, and I'll hop back in my box after this, is that there's been a general decline in leadership, in public accountability, in ministerial responsibility. And the result of that is the trickle-down effect. So we know the neoliberal creed of trickle-down in wealth doesn't work because it's been trickling up, especially during the pandemic, but there has been a trickle-down in behavioural standards and in process. Through the federal government, down through no accountability there, down now through the states and Gladys Berejiklian in New South Wales saying, well, it might be corrupt, those are the rorts, uh, but it's legal. I just want to ask you one last question before I let you jump back in your box. And that is uh, the environment which in you, you report this material. So I was when I was writing an op-ed on Barangaroo, I had a lot of problem with the editor um, that I was dealing with about what I could say. They were very worried about being sued. And I just wonder about the, the importance of reporting on these cases and the challenges that you, I assume, you face in trying to report on this without things like getting sued. Well, I've had three defamation threats in three months and the threat is the same every time, you know, shut up, apologise, take down the story or we will sue you and, we, and, that, and the implication of that is that you lose your home because lawyers' fees uh, on, a, on a big defamation case are well above a million just to, to get through court and then if you lose, you pay the other side's costs. So you t- you t- they're, they're, they're intimidating you with, with the financial spectre of ruin basically every time they do it. So that's one thing. The defamation lawyers, the ambulance chasers from the defamation profession are out of control. Um, that needs to be reformed. The newspapers are particularly scared, not just because of defamation but because of the corporate agendas because... The corporations fund the the newspapers through advertising and further the government is now an absolutely enormous funder through political advertising of all the major media organisations too. So if you're a journalist trying to do your job, you're going to get somebody tapping you on the shoulder. So we get people coming to us. We Our problem is we don't have the resources to cover all the stories or go in depth enough because we're a small independent outfit. But the problems are myriad. You've got... You've got the publishers of these organisations and the producers high up, the executives who are out to lunch with advertisers and politicians and so, so on the whole time, getting tapped on the shoulder, they appoint editors and underlings that they want to appoint. So you end up with, you've got this compliance going on in the established corporate media and you've got independent media under threat from defamation. So there are all sorts of pitfalls, particularly if you name people. If you name large corporations, you should be okay um, not always uh, in a defamation sense, but that's even after you've got the information. If you're not getting a document drop, a leak from somebody, then you have to rely, that 
car parks rot story that we broke, broken by Jommy T, who's a retired bureaucrat, expert in this kind of thing, who prefers to remain anonymous for various reasons. And uh, he did it. We checked it out. We agonised over the story. That he, the car parks rot, the urban congestion fund, so $5 billion fund, of which only a bit's been used. So this is a war chest now for the next two elections as well. Uh, People don't quite understand that. These projects were not based on policy at all. They were just handed out to mostly Liberal electorates. A lot of the work being done even surprised the locals getting it themselves. Uh, Some people said there was no need for these things. I mean, it was like the sports rorts where women's change rooms, you know, the women's change rooms issue. So there's a huge perversion in the use of public money that goes to policy-making, decision-making in this area and really a federal ICAC and political donations reform, instant disclosure, it just has to come or the situation is going to, to slide because there's a greater wealth concentration, sorry, of power and wealth now in fewer and larger corporations, which, which, brings, them in, which brings them in really tightly with government and it's a huge issue. So transparency, big Federal ICAC, absolutely required, and changes to defamation laws would be good also. I'm going to ask you a little bit later about what we can do about it, so you might be able to revisit a couple of those uh, comments then. Thank you so much for that, Michael. It's uh, super interesting. What We will go now to Han, um, and Han, we've just heard from Michael and Crystal about the way that government is working in relation to a number of urban and other projects across a number of states in Australia. The question, I guess, for you is, is this a common story? Does money really have this type of influence in politics and policy outcomes in Australia, and what might we do about it? Thanks, Alice, and thanks for uh, inviting me to join this panel. Um, I'd also like to pay my respects to the traditional owners. I'm joining from Wurundjeri country, Uh, here in Melbourne on the lands of the Kulin Nation. Um, My talk today will focus on political donations as it provides at least some uh, numerical or quantitative evidence of some of the the influence um, that has been spoken about. I guess the thing to point out is without a federal ICAC and without transparency, we don't really know what the dark web of influence looks like. so at least political donations can help us to um, see the tip of the iceberg, if you like, of some of the um, influence that we're talking about. The property industry is one of the largest donating industries and they're the second largest in total behind the mining industry at a Commonwealth level. Um, But if you take out Clive Palmer's donations, um, the property industry actually comes out on top as the biggest donor to Commonwealth parties. The reason we've done the analysis at a Commonwealth level is because, for one thing, property donations have been banned in New South Wales and Queensland, um, but also it begins to unpick um, some of the details that obviously need more analysis. We've we've done analysis of the Australian Electoral Commission data from 1999 to 2019, um, so over 20 years. And 
the property industry comes out at $54 million over those 20 years. And it correlates with election years, which again can point to some of that influence um, that I was speaking about, um, peaking in 2019 at uh, $5.7 uh, million. We'll look at who's giving the donations. Um, Sugarline is an interesting one. They gave um, the second largest political donation in history, um, and that was in the 2019 election year of four, almost $4.1 million to the Liberal Party. Um, some of the others on the list uh, viewers may be familiar with. Westfield's a pretty common name. Um, but the other interesting thing, I guess, about looking at this data is that Hong Kong Kings and Investment Co. might be not a name that people are aware of uh, in this space. Um, and it shows the sort of difficulties and um, op opacity in the reporting of political donations is that you can put donations in under whatever name you choose as long as it's linked to um, your company. So it might be that it's an, a, an ownership company of a, of a firm that we know quite well. Uh, Sugar Lena. So who's receiving this money? Um, the Liberal Party of Australia um, over the past 20 years has received the bulk of it, um, 15.1 million, um, and the Labor Party at a state and federal level has also re received a lot. And as I mentioned, um, Sugarlina was one of the largest donations. They're linked to the property investor Isaac Wakil. Uh, Meriton's another big donor. Um, and just to give a bit of insight into what these donations can do, the Ministerial Diaries in New South Wales show that Meriton met with uh, New South Wales ministers 18 times between uh, January 2019 and September 2020. Um, so mu not much more than um, about once a month if you if you divide it up evenly. So why, why is the industry making these donations? Um, access is one part of it. But also the property industry is reliant on licences, permits, property deals, um, and a lot of those decisions uh, are with government. And as Michael spoke about, with the concentration of power in the hands of ministers, which has been exacerbated by the COVID crises, um, making donations to, to political parties and the lack of accountability means that ministers are able to return the favour, if you like, by providing access and then impacting decisions around licences and permits. I guess reflecting the role of the property industry in, in undue influence, um, New South Wales and Queensland have banned property industry donations. Um, and New South Wales, as many will know, have um, an independent commission against corruption and an independent planning commission um, to separate uh, the role of ministers in these planning decisions, uh, but also to provide independent investigations through the ICAC. All the donations I spoke about uh, today are at a national level, and as Michael mentioned, there is no National Integrity Commission or federal ICAC, and certainly no independent planning oversight. Um, so those institutions are as important as uh, the regulation of, of money and politics. I just spoke about some of our analysis of political donations. People can go to our website um, to dig into more detail on 
uh, property donations, property industry donations, mining industry donations. Um, we've done a whole suite of analysis on uh, the different industries and, and how donations have changed over time. So I'll pass back to you, Dallas. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. I have a couple of questions in there about how we might do more research in this space. There's probably a number of people looking to, in a kind of methodological sense, for how do we dig into these th these questions? Do you have any tips for the researchers in the room about actually researching um, donations and the access and other things that it might grant you? Yeah. As I mentioned, it's quite a difficult area because of the lack of information. So, for example, in the property, looking at the property industry, polit political donations are banned in New South Wales. Obviously, New South Wales ICAC has revealed that donations still happen. Um, they just aren't uh, disclosed and they're done in ways that get around those regulations. So that makes it more difficult to track, obviously. There's ministerial diaries available in Queensland and New South Wales, which is really helpful, and we pulled um, one number out of that around Meriton's access. Um, Queensland's not a bad place in terms of availability of data. They've got ministerial diaries but also better, better disclosure of political donations than um, at a federal level. But at a federal level, there's very little data available with high disclosure thresholds for political donations. So nothing below $14,000 is, is disclosed um, and no ministerial diaries. So I guess people need to be creative and, um, and uh, yeah, look at ministerial diaries, look at donations data. You know, we're, we're doing the work of categorising the donations data by industry um, as part of our donations project. Uh, and that's sort of hefty work in itself. Um, but there's plenty plenty of work to do and um, a lot of detailed dredging is basically the uh, advice. Excellent. I will come back and ask you a little bit more about the federal ICAC and how that might work in a, in a little bit when we get to the back end of the discussion. Thanks for that. Okay, we'll head over to Sue now. And Sue, we've been hearing some alarming stories about the way that money talks in the world of politics and particularly just then at the federal and state levels. But I guess we should flick now to the local level. And my question really is what, what it's it like to try to get things done at this different level of government in, in relation to urban questions, urban infrastructure, et cetera? Great question, Dallas. Thanks very much for that really broad question, which could take me in all sorts of places. Um, and like others, I will just, I'm actually sitting in my office in Hurstville, so I'll just acknowledge the Bindal people of um, the Eora Nation um, and acknowledge their, their, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. So, um, great question. And one of the things I would actually start with is by saying, I suppose in my long time in, in local government, I actually think we're probably in a lot better position in terms of governance structures than has been in the past. And as we move into the third decade of what is actually the 21st century, we can actually see some significant improvements in the overall governance framework, so how it's actually managed at the local government level. Um, and that's because of some of the things that, that Han just um, spoke about. And that is the, the movement away from individual decisions resting with um, councillors 
but actually um, the use of expert panels um, to determine local and regional development applications and also to advise councillors and council on um, um, planning proposals. And so this, so this direct reliance on, on experts um, 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 also reduces that sort of direct involvement we've had in the past of, of councillors making decisions on individual development applications. The other part of this equation, while it's got a bit better of recent times, has been um, the greater emphasis on getting the strategic planning right, which is, and having really strong strategic planning in place, which is well considered, um, supported by evidence, um, and developed in conjunction with the community, is actually the essence of um, a good um, governance framework for clear decisions. And in fact, it's interesting listening to the others speak um, many of the examples being cited are, are, are decisions that have been made without any strategic um, in, um, alignment at all. It was almost like some of them are almost random. The car park decisions seemed a bit random. Decisions about whether or not to build motorways is sometimes random. It depends on who puts their hand up to offer to build something. Um, and there has been, from a, a land use planning point of view in local government, a real desire to actually see a clear um, line of sight between a regional plan and district plan, local uh, planning statements, and, and then the local environment plan. And in theory, they all line up and decisions are made which make sense from a, a bigger picture and actually at the local level. Um, but <laughs> when there's a big but with this. Um, there are so many um, loopholes and alternatives and possibilities what actually we are getting is a system that is nowhere near perfect um, and it suffers a great deal from embedded uh, mistrust and is misused. Um, and there's lots of examples of that, um, certainly here in Sydney despite, or New South Wales, despite my sort of um, indication that things have got a bit better over the years, there's still this lingering sense of mistrust with the community um, they see things happening that don't align with the strategic plans they've been heavily involved in. They also have um, housing targets um, in our strategic planning imposed upon them in the sense that they have no control over some of those that decision. So a sense that they've been a disenfranchised view of the planning system. Not help sometimes when local government um, merely sort of says, oh, they're the hardest housing targets because the government tells us that they are housing targets and we haven't found a way yet to engage the community on those decisions. It's not really surprising that there is an underlying sense of mistrust in the planning system. It's always there. The other element of that mistrust goes to um, the um, pushback in re regarding accepting the advice of people defined as experts. And this is across all range of, of communities' experiences. We're seeing it now to some extent with the pandemic and some people pushing back on the advice, the expert advice of um, medical um, um, scientists. Um, and there's, so we've actually got to work harder engaging in the community so that we actually build some of that trust back into um, the community around um, the trust that needs to be built. 
So I go back and I say there is mistrust in the system and actually there is really good reason for that mistrust. Um, we can't dismiss it. Um, it actually exists and it should exist. We have, despite having this comprehensive strategic planning framework, which, which all planning decisions should align to, you can make decisions and decisions can be made at a political level which have no alignment at all to that um, strategic framework. Um, people may be surprised to know that um, the um, state planning policies in New South Wales do not need to, do not have to comply with the region plans or the district plans. Um, and that enables governments to introduce policies that have no alignment, which are politically um, popular perhaps, um, come out of nowhere and make no sense to the local community. Um, one of the really good examples in Sydney that um, I often refer to is uh, Macquarie Park. Macquarie Park for many years had evolved as a fairly low-density industrial um, knowledge-based employment area um, and had done so for some time. Um, the government came in um, as a result of some rail investment and without a strategic plan, merely changed the zoning around um, one particular station um, to higher density housing. This is land owned by the government. So no strategic, no strategic plan to say this is what should happen. They upzoned land around one of the stations, um, higher density, and then um, sold it off. Um, the consequence of this sort of, and then they allowed some other private land to be rezoned for, for residential. A couple of years beforehand, there was a high, a former high school site in Macquarie Park, Peterboard High, the former high school of the current Premier of, um, of New South Wales. Um, that was sold off and was going to be at one stage a commercial development and then a master's hardware store. None of those came, came to fruition. But what happened, once they started rezoning land for residential, then a residential um, developer purchased the site and then the government came to the conclusion that actually, actually we'll now need to buy, we need land for a school because we've allowed all this residential development to take place. Um, and I'd like to think that that transition from industrial, commercial to high-density residential to the need for a school and a park and other facilities to support residential was something that might have happened over 30 years. This happened within a space of about five years. The consequence is the government had to acquire the site or part of that old Peterboard High School site back to build the school necessary um, to serve that community. So there, Macquarie Park is not an orphan. There are other examples of ad hoc decision-making in the planning system that then has led to a decision, well, we now better do a master plan, which is exactly what happened in Macquarie Park there's now a commitment to do a master plan to identify infrastructure needed, et cetera. But the decisions that led to that, it's like it's, you know, certainly um, it was reverse in terms of they made the decisions and now the master plan's got to fit with those decisions that have already been made. Another area for that for mistrust within the system is that notion that um, that it is possible to buy advice. So that's part of the reason why expert advice is not always um, 
treated well by the community. And I've certainly heard more than one person say or more, one more counsellor counselor say that, oh, yes, but you can, you know, just shop around and get the right advice to um, suit at the position of the developer. I hope that as the government continues to invest in the role of the independent planning panels to determine apl development applications and advisors on planning proposals, that actually one of the outcomes that will be achieved is that it will wash out through the system the people who are putting their hand up to be councillors for the wrong reasons. And there's certainly plenty of examples in the past of councillors being too heavily involved in, um, the, in, in trying to influence um, staff on planning decisions or making some interesting decisions for which there is no evidence to support that decision making. Um, people may be interested to know that in New South Wales, if you wish to be a councillor, you have to identify yourself as if you are a developer, but it doesn't prevent you being a, a councillor. And it is one of those contentious matters that continues to be debated um, in various areas. Um, my council, for example, has several resolutions on the books about banning developers from being um, councillors. There was a most, the most recent significant ICAC investigation into a council was um, in the Canterbury, the former Canterbury Council. Um, and it's a really good read for people who want to understand what happened and how councillors, even if they're not the direct decision makers on a on a development proposal, can can significantly influence and um, influence, I'll use influence as the right word, influence the outcome in the in the outcome that they required. In that particular case, the councillors there not only sought to um, influence the decision, they actually were trying to influence who was appointed as the director of planning to ensure that they got the right person um, in the role of the director of planning. This particular case strongly highlighted the impact of of um, political advocates and lobbyists and the influence through the political parties, not always all having to be in the, on the same political party. It's a very interesting um, read in terms of where the relationships um, lay. Um, and if those who want to re a reminder of what can the Canterbury case, this is actually the case that flushed out the, the, the role that Daryl Maguire, uh, former MP, was um, and partner of the Premier, um, flushed out his role in opening doors and, um, and getting council support for other people's projects and taking a, 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 a small cut of that impact. So as we move forward, I suppose I'm, I'm living hopefully that the changes that the government has made will have a big impact in trying to prevent that sort of influence that strategic planning becomes the cornerstone of what our government, our government's governance around planning decisions has to make. The councils also need to put in place really strong governance to prevent the sort of inf indirect influence that was being applied in the Canterbury, for example, in the Canterbury Council case. I think there's a little way to go, but I think in certainly in New South Wales, the introduction of the, the planning panels and the reliance on experts and evidence-based decision-making and a strong strategic planning framework is the basis for something better going forward. Thank you so much for that. And I think the commentary around strategic planning is so important because 
strategic planning is how we literally plan for the future of the city. And when things are, decisions are being taken that are not strategically taken, then it can literally wreak havoc on our cities. One other part of this um, that got me thinking uh, when you were talking was what do we do now about questions around Indigenous land and Indigenous, this is a panel about um, ethics in, in some respects and how we might move forward in more ethical ways in relation to um, questions around Indigenous land rights uh, in the city. Do you have any reflections on that at the local level or just in general? Um, yeah, and the, the issue of um, planning, um, recognising um, and planning for country is actually some of the big steps that, that planning can take. Um, if you'd asked me that question even five years ago, I might have said, no, uh, it's not really on our radar, but it's certainly on our radar uh, radar now. Um, and in terms of what does that mean for the planning system, it's probably one where I'm not um, not the expert to say, other than I, I suspect that the next time you ask, you know, if you ask that question again in two years' time, there will be a really well-defined answer in terms of in, that how does planning um, um, relate to country and vice versa. Um, and, I, and I think some of the um, principles around that and the rights of, of um, uh, First Nations people and Aboriginals in terms of the decision-making about how land should be used and developed, it'll be a very different um, um, landscape in a couple of years' time. Yes, uh, we certainly hope so. Okay, I, thanks for that, Sue. And I might ask all the panellists now to turn on their cameras and microphones and what I want to do now is to do a sweep through the panel. And um, we've sort of outlined what we think is wrong in our cities and what we think is wrong with the way that our city, the power and politics of our cities. But I wanted to get some brief comments before we wrap up about what we could do about this. And I might go to you first, Crystal. What should we do about this? Oh, Dallas, thanks for that question. I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this question and I've decided that I'm a really impatient person. So I've decided I'm not going to wait until government sorts itself out and rather whether or not we can find hopes, um, glimmers of hope and inspiration within the communities we work in. So I'm really interested in citizen-led planning. And one of the things that that has opened for me is thinking through this idea of solidarity as a lens through which to consider a new form of governance, a transformative governance that may uh, engage with questions of vulnerability and marginalization as we currently see it getting played out. Making calls for evidence-based decision-making, better aligning strategic planning with project-based planning, that's all well and good. But we just saw with the, the last election of the Labour Party government that a massive transformational project, the Suburban Rail Loop, uh, was, was pitched, won that government a majority, and it does not align with a strategic plan. In fact, there is no strategic plan, an integrated strategic plan in Victoria, but yet here we are in the context of a big build. So I'm interested in this question of solidarity. So what do I mean by that? So very, very pragmatically, I'm interested in questions of, of informal connection, building connection across our wider sort of community of built environment professionals, 
working with um, passionate citizens that are already out there making noise and working with people who are in the system, who are working in the consultancies, who are working in the private sector, who are working in government, who are raising questions and their eyebrows themselves, their eyebrows right being raised around perhaps some unethical practices, processes, and policies that they're seeing emerge. Conversation spaces like this one are really, really important. So I just want to, again, um, as kind of acknowledge and celebrate the work that Dallas and, and Nicole and others have done in creating this space. Um, building those connections, identifying where the concerns are and where they're common across disparate groups or across disparate geographies is also really important. And one thing I just want to acknowledge is that we know how the system's not working for us. We know the extent to which it's broken because there's Auditor General reports that tell us how and where these problems lie. We've got fantastic investigative journalism by people like Michael West who are unpacking how power is structured and where money gets gains uh, greater levels of access and influence. But the question is, is how we can amplify those voices how we can use our respective platforms. My platform as an academic is a particular platform that I can, I can use to speak truth to power. Um, that might uh, mean that I'm a kind of an activist academic and I feel very comfortable in that space, not everyone does. Um, but that is something that I think we need to do more of. And I'm very, I'm less interested in, in pointing the finger now. I'm more interested in, in asking questions about what we can do about changing governance and ensuring that it doesn't become extinct and that we can transform it for something that's really positive, good, and up to the tasks like climate change, pandemics, and social and spatial injustice. Great. Thank you so much. I really like that suggestion of actually working with what we've got. And I've had lots of productive conversations with people in consultancies and government, actually, who do exactly what you're saying, which is just raising their eyebrows at what's happening. And disgruntled at what's happening. So I think that's a very powerful suggestion. Thanks for that, Crystal. Um, Michael, I might go to you next. What do we do about this? Well, I think Crystal's point on messaging is incredibly important. In a democracy, if you don't have information, you can't uh, act on it. You've got to have the full information. And unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, propaganda flowing around the place. Um, just on Sue's point about the local government reforms, I actually, my personal experience of that, and I'm certainly no academic in the area or expert at all, uh, but um, I think some of the processes put in there have been have been quite good. We won't go into the minutiae and the, the, the structures of some of these things, but generally the planning panels have been have been pretty good. My, my point is that there's been a huge slide in standards at the national level and to a, to, to a worrying but lesser extent at the state level as well with unsolicited proposals and the growing power of money uh, in politics. But the messaging is also a problem at the local level, of course, because we've had until recently just the two major news organisations controlling the entire national regional press uh, all those papers. Now, that is starting to break down a bit as people, you know, with the internet, uh, as people, um, you know, uh, set up small regional operations. But the problem, of course, is if you're the local, uh, I'm here in Manly, if you go down to the local council and try to run, uh, give them a story about corruption or something like that, they rely on the council. 
uh, I think for advertising as well as uh, as well as being in good with the council, so that they can talk to the councillors, etc. So there are conflicts here, and it all gets back, I think, to to transparency. Someone finally had just had a very good point in the chat forum about why don't we set up a WikiLeaks? Yeah, do you want to, do you want do you want to talk to that? Because I was going to ask you that question. Yeah, so specifically, I think it's a fabulous idea, but it's it's you know, and and you know, I we're the sort of people that could run something like this because we do a bit of outsourced production for other media. But the the problem, of course, is that it gets back to defamation, and as we all know, people at the local level get incredibly. I was speaking to somebody I know, a lawyer, got hit with a fence post by his neighbour the other day over a dispute about the height of the fence and that ended up in court for 11 days at great expense to the uh, to the state's taxpayers. But, you know, the WikiLeaks idea is a really good one because everyone could just dump it. It'd be one, just local government around the country. People could leak things um, securely. People could uh, have their say and so on. I think it would be a terrific thing except for one thing. Australia's antiquated defamation laws that are based on 18th century common law and doing any of this kind of thing, like the hot copper chat forum uh, for, for ASX tr traders and so on, the bloke that's run that is always getting threatened, always working out ways that he can move the servers offshore. But even if you move the servers offshore and you're seen to control the servers and they're in Iceland or even the US, which has much better laws and defo here than we do here, they can still sue you. So this is the problem. It would have to be run out of somewhere else with nobody with a commercial interest in it here. So it is technically very possible that we could set it up and run it uh, through servers offshore somewhere. Um, but the same thing would happen. You'd have defamation lawyers all over you trying to find out who was behind it, maybe even taking action in another jurisdiction. So a terrific idea, but the law would need to be reformed. Excellent. So your two take-homes are change the defamation laws and it's about uh, the messaging. And I'm looking at your shirt there and there's a pig on your shirt and I'm going to take that as some message as well, but I don't know quite what it, it says is. says the message is on the back, oh, uh, right, Dallas, okay. and it says federal ICAC, <laughs> federal ICAC now. Right. It's our own. We've even set up our own slush fashion brand, <laughs> a bit of merch, federal ICAC now, to get that idea out there that we really need a federal ICAC badly. Excellent. And I think that's a good place to hand over to Han. Yeah, I just forgot that. Michael and I had agreed to wear our Federal ICAC T-shirts. I should get mine um, during the break. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think, I mean, I agree with Crystal that we do need to, like, regain uh, power over our decision-making. But I guess there are things that can be done at a regulatory level to make sure that the ability for industry to unfairly influence our decision-making is curtailed. Um, we need to rein in the ability to buy politics through unregulated political donations, um, set real-time disclosure, cap spending um, of for political parties, cap political donations, as they have done in New South Wales. Um, uh, we need to do that across all jurisdictions. Could I ask you specifically about the federal ICAC? How would that work? Sure. So as I mentioned in my talk, there is no agency at a federal level that has the ability to investigate any 
corruption allegations of uh, MPs or senior public servants. Um, and that's an outrage as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, there's an integrity commission uh, operating at a, at a state level across Australia. Um, and so the federal government need not look far to, to find examples of, of how to set up an integrity commission. We've looked at all the examples at a state level um, and come up with what we think is the best practice form. Um, it would include a broad jurisdiction to investigate uh, any conduct of any person that looks to have uh, an undue influence on, on public administration, um, but with limitations on that so that it's serious or systemic conduct um, and uh, making sure that the Commission focuses on in areas that are serious, um, serious types of conduct. Um, we'd also look at the importance of public reporting and public hearings. Um, the model that the federal government put out for its Commonwealth Integrity Commission has no ability to report to the public and no ability to hold public hearings. So as far as we're concerned, that's um, fueling corruption by hiding it in dark corners, which is where corruption likes to hide. Um, and exposure, sunlight, as the old term goes, is, is what's needed to sort of unpick these dark webs uh, of corruption. So a broad jurisdiction, strong investigative powers, um, similar to those of a Royal Commission, um, and similar to those of, of New South Wales ICAC um, and the Queensland Triple C, uh, which are some of the stronger state models. Thanks for that. Um, Sue, uh, last one to you. And I just wanted to follow up. You were talking about some recent changes in New South Wales um, panels and things. Could you talk us through those specifically and what the benefits of those are? And look, it's it's my age. I call it recent, but we've been this for a few years now. Um, I think since uh, I think the the first of the independent assessment panels came out in um, uh, about 2010, I think the first of the um, two, and they provided assessment or determination on um, regional scale applications. And then with the post the amalgamation of the council. Councils in 2016 and prior to the first uh, first lot of councils being re-elected back into those new councils in 2017, they, the government mandated local planning panels, so again, independent experts who would determine for certain types of um, local applications. I think the big impact of that has been on from a development application point of view is far more consistency in decision making, less influence, or not? I'm not going to say no influence um, in terms of decision making, but it, but certainly a whole lot less influence of decision making. I think it's also helped to provide greater guidance to the assessment officers and councils. So, as a general approach, those sort of independent bodies um, appointed by the government at the um, from the um, state planning panels to the the local planning panels, which are appointed by councils, but from the a, an approved list from the state government, has certainly provided far greater um, consistency, removed some of the direct influence or the sort of what I might have called the unusual decision-making that sometimes happened with council. Um, and that certainly has improved that process. And I think everyone feels a lot 
uh, more comfortable with that process. It has, it's not perfect. Um, like all great systems, it's not perfect. There remains plenty of other avenue, however, within the planning system for influence. Um, and actually, probably, if you'd asked me what would be the one thing I would change from a local government point of view or even, you know, sort of that sort of land use planning um, influence, it would be um, the issue related with planning proposals where landowners can ap apply to have their land rezoned. Um, and through my time in um, local government, I've seen that grow from small-scale projects, which to things which were ambitious, um, then aspirational, and downright fanciful in terms of the level of additional development. So if you if you got a chance to make um, you know a hundred million dollar windfall gain from the rezoning of your land, it's worth investing in lobbyists and other people to advocate for you. And certainly the case is. Um, a few people were interested in the Canterbury case, I would simply do Canterbury Council ICAC and it'll take you to their transcript of and their final report of that investigation. And you can see the real benefit of anyone um, receiving an, um, an upzoning of their land and what they can make out of it from a, from a relatively small um, investment. So it is one of those areas which could um, a significant amount of influence could be removed if people couldn't do it. I'm not sure the government would ever agree to that because um, look, looking at that list of um, donors that, that Han had in, in um, their um, presentation, I would say they would not be happy So, because they are some of the beneficiaries of those decisions. But it would make a big difference. It would make a huge difference. It'd be, And I think we'd also find we would get a different group of people putting their hand up to be local government councillors as well. Hey everyone, Dallas Rogers here and thanks for listening to this podcast series from the Festival of Urbanism. Make sure you check out all the panel discussions at cityroadpod.org. See you next time.